We have coming up a homework assignment due Monday of next week. Uh, there will be the next iTunes quiz will actually be available starting on Monday as well. It'll go through the pictures through Friday of this week. So it'll cover uh, October 4th, the end of the last quiz, up through November the 7th. And that will be available starting on Monday. And then quiz 6, which will cover chapters 13 and 14, is planned for next weekend. And that should, we should be through everything by then. And then next thing coming up will probably be the third article review which will be due on November the 19th. So we're coming up real quick now because Thanksgiving isn't too far after that. And we'll be just about coming down to the very, coming down to the very end, of the end of the class. Um, exams are graded and up. I will get those back to you on Friday because I still have one or two people who missed that I have to get uh, exams made up for. So I will give them back. The grades are up. If you want to look, it was similar to the last one, I guess. The grades were not that great. They were a little under it was a little under, right, right close to 60%, but slightly under was the average. So you can take a look at those there. I will say I will give you those back on, on Friday. Not sure, what, or not sure what I'm doing on these. I mean, I use questions. I have a big question bank, so I've used a lot of these questions before, and I don't know if I'm just missing with you guys, and the questions just aren't working for this class when they've worked, they've worked previously, or if I'm doing something a little bit different. So I'm not sure exactly where I'm, where I'm going wrong there, but I do have... Because of that, yeah, I do have one more extra credit assignment for you. So I'll try to help a little bit. I used to give extra points, but I, then I feel like that's just giving, giving points. I want you to actually do something to, to earn them. And what I have for you, actually it's two, but one I was planning anyway. This was the new one. Uh, the first one is asking you to make up a couple questions for me. So make up one question for each of the next three chapters. 13, 14, and 15. You can do multiple choice. You can do true, false. You can do fill-ins. You can write an essay. Um, you can uh, essay one. Give me the question. Give me an answer, and I'll give you two points for each one. Um, that'll be six points, essentially added to your exam. Will raise your exam grade like 10 to 12 percent. So if you got a if you got a 60 on the exam, it pulls you up into the 70s. So it can make a, it can make a big difference on it, on the exam grade there. The only thing I'll, I'll qualify, I did put a couple things on this. Um, it's one per chapter, so you can't do all of them from chapter 13. You've got to do one from 13, one from 14, one from 15 if you're going to do them. If you only want to do one, you can do one for two points. That's, of course, up to you. Um, give me the correct answer. So make sure you get the answer right and give me a correct answer to it. Um, make sure that you give me a reference to it, like where did you find this in the textbook too. So if you're looking through the textbook or if you found a question, uh, I mean, information that you use someplace else, give me a reference to it so I can see that. And please make sure you're making up your own questions. So don't just go to the back of the book and pull out a question there and try to submit that for me. I'm not going to give you credit. In fact, if, you get, if I find that, I won't give you credit for the assignment. So there, don't pull a question offline. You know, look through the book, make up your own question. It shouldn't be too hard to make up you know, one question, you know, one multiple choice or true false question for each of them and give me an answer and a reference. And that would be up to six, up to six points. Um, I do want them on a Word or other text document and submitted on D2L. So don't turn them into me here. I want them submitted digitally on D2L for this assignment. So make sure you do that. I have them due the 19th of November. So you've got, what, a couple weeks, two weeks to do them. And that'll be in time for me to look at them. Maybe I'll find some good ones. So you may see your questions are, are liable to come up on the next exam. Some of these may come up on the, on the next exam. So. I'll give you that, and you can do that anytime 
You can turn that in anytime. I will create a Dropbox. If I don't have one open for extra credit on D2L, I'll make sure there's one there and just submit it. I say a Word document. If you do a RTF, or, you know, rich text form, is fi fine as well. Just some, something of that kind of that, that nature for me would be good. On the back, there's one more assignment. I usually do this for my online classes and I usually don't do it for you guys because it's for the course evaluations and normally we do seeks, right? And I hand out papers here so you're kind of a captive audience. You have to do them. We're doing a pilot with some of the classes this year and they're doing online evaluations for these classes. So I'm not going to be handing you out paper seeks in the class. You're going to get an email probably either this weekend or on Monday about the online course evaluations and how to access it. What I have you do, what I normally do for my online classes is I have them go and do that. So complete the evaluation and then just send me an email that says you completed it. I have no way to check that, I'll be honest with you. I know at the end, you know, once everything's submitted at the very end and I get results and I say two people completed it and 20 people told me they did, I know that something was wrong and you know, I shouldn't have given them extra credit so I'm trusting you to do it. But I appreciate the comments on it. I really like when they do the online ones because you have a chance to actually write something. On the seeks in here, it's fill out the little bubbles and you know, grade me from one to five on these different things. It helps to some extent, but really if you can tell me that this was good or this was bad and explain it and take a couple minutes to actually write a comment on it, I really appreciate, you know, good or bad. You know, I, I've looked at them, some of the things that you're doing in class now or that have changed are because of comments students have given me. So you can't do that one right now. You can do it starting, it should be available starting on Monday. If you don't get that email, let me know so I can find out and get a hold of them as early as possible if people aren't seeing it. The due date of that one is unusual for the class. Just so you know up there, it's due November 30th at 1159. That's because that's when the evaluation closes. So I don't want you to come back in December and say, oh, I did it way back. I want you to send me the email before everything closed. So as long as you do that, if you do it next week, send me the email, you're done. So there's five points I was planning on when I knew I was doing this and then an extra six points will kind of help with, with one of the exams that will pull you up a little bit, a little bit there. So a little bit of extra stuff but neither of those should take you hours upon hours and hours to, to do. Yes ma'am? Uh, when you send an email, do you attach anything to it or do you no. just say? No. Just an email that says you completed it. I'm, take, I'm taking you on your word that you've completed it. So that, that's all I can do because I won't see the results until after final, they don't let me see the results until final grades are submitted. Mm -hmm. So I can't see anything or I can't, I never get to see who submitted. I'll never know. I'll know the numbers. So I'll know that 10 people told me they submitted and usually when I do this it matches pretty well. Usually 12 people will say they submitted it and I'll get 12 evaluations for the class. So people are usually real good on it and I'm you know, trusting you guys to do the same thing. Yeah. For which one? The due date should be, I think it was the 1st of December. It should be on the top of that sheet. Yeah. So yeah, it's not quite the end. Little before the end so I have time to look at them before the, okay. the final. But the due date should be at the top like these. It should give you a due date so up there. You can. If you, oh, you can always turn it in early. Yeah. Oh, early is fine. Just, just not late, especially as we're getting towards the end of the term. You don't want to be pushing things late. No, if you finish it or have, it, have something ready and you want to turn it in you know, next week or whatever, that's, that's fine with me. Would it be more helpful to turn it in later? I'll probably, if I get stuff earlier, it'll probably hold to, and I'll probably grade everything at once. Okay. 
So it doesn't mean if you turn it in earlier, it doesn't mean you'll get a grade on it earlier. You might, it just depends on what else I've got to get done. Alright? Anything else? Okay. Alrighty, well, picture of the day for today. Uh, we're jumping about a chapter or two ahead here, but a nice little picture here as well. This is a galaxy named NGC 4762. That's a catalog designation for it, the new general catalog, NGC, and then just its catalog number. And that's how most objects in the sky are actually named, is by, is by catalog designations. This is an, actually a galaxy. And we're coming up to galaxies. We're almost done with chapter 13 here. And hopefully by Friday we'll actually start talking about uh, our own galaxy. But this is a galaxy containing many billions of stars. There is a central portion to it here, a central core. And then a disk, flattened disk, stretching out across the image here. Now our galaxy would look something like this. If we could look at it from outside, look at it uh, from the edge view. But not quite. We kind of get an edge view from inside. And if you recall pictures we see of our Milky Way, there's all these dark dust patches that we see trailing through it. That's typical of a spiral galaxy, a galaxy like our own, that we see a lot of dust. This is an unusual galaxy in that it has two things. It's very flat. It's flattened down like a pancake. It's not a big ball of stars. There are galaxies like that we'll look at too coming up in chapter 15. And it has no, no dust in it. Normally the flattened disk galaxies have lots of dust. That's what our galaxy is and it has a lot of dust where stars are forming. So it's conjectured that if you could travel out hundreds of millions of light years and be able to go someplace where you could look down on this galaxy from the other, you know, from a 90 degree angle looking straight down on it, that you probably would not see spiral arms like you do in our own galaxy. Couldn't tell you that for sure because we can't travel hundreds of millions of light years to go see. It would be wonderful to be able to do, but we have no way to be able to do that. And this is what is called a lenticular galaxy. Again, we'll go over those uh, coming, coming up in a, uh, next week probably we'll hit them. Uh, but they're an unusual galaxy is that they're kind of a combination between two. We have spiral galaxies which are flattened down like a little disk. It's like a pancake with spiral arms and lots of dust and gas. The other main type of galaxy is an elliptical galaxy. Big blob of stars. We saw a globular cluster. We looked at those. Imagine that multiplied billions, uh, billions, many times bigger. So a gigantic big blob of stars. They can look like a big basketball, you know, gigantic, containing billions of stars or even trillions of stars. They can be flattened like a football, a little bit flattened, but they never get this flat. They don't get flattened down to a disk. So they can be like big round spheres and they can be a little bit flattened down to a football type shape. But they never look quite like this. But in terms of the stars we see, these look like the stars we see in an elliptical galaxy. We don't see dust or gas or anything else. So it's kind of a cross between the elliptical and the spiral galaxy. It's got the shape of a spiral galaxy in that it's very flattened. But it has the star composition of an elliptical galaxy. So we'll be taking a look at those again in the, coming, in the coming weeks as we start talking about the galaxies here uh, as we finish up stars today and maybe a little bit on Friday. So I will stop there. Questions? Anything on? Say so the spiral galaxies give you much nicer pictures. You get the real pretty beautiful spiral arms. But there's also some interesting things that go on in here. Alrighty. Well, we will go back and 
work on chapter 13. And we had just gotten to this point, I believe. Yep, because we looked at the isolated neutron star last time. Now we're going to start looking at the fact that neutron stars are not necessarily all by themselves. We saw last time they're very hard to see. They're very tiny. And even though they're hot, they're very not very bright at all. So very faint, very hard to see. But when they're in a companion system where there's two stars there, then we can actually begin to see them. And this is an example here. We're looking at the object here, looking towards the center of our galaxy. And we see stars that are rather faint here. Well, it's emitting a little bit of light. What kind of light? Our little diagram here tells us we're actually looking at x-rays here. So it's emitting a little bit of x-rays. And all of a sudden, it bursts and gives off more x-rays. So we look, at the, we look at the star. We see regular star, the unusual star, and that it's giving off x-rays in the first place. So something unusual is going on. But it also bursts. It's not just giving the same amount. Here it gives off a whole big burst of x-rays. And then it dies down. And then it might do it again, over and over again. We had something like that a little while ago. Right? We talked about a nova. White dwarf star collected hydrogen and caused it to burn and burst out in visible light. Well, what we have here and what we believe these x-ray bursts are that we see are actually uh, the same type of process, but instead of, a, instead of a white dwarf star, you have a neutron star, something even more compact. So what we believe we have is that you have a neutron star, little teeny tiny, and a regular companion star. And just like the white dwarf, this neutron star is collecting material. So it material funnels off the main star to the neutron star and collects on its surface. Right? We talked about that before with the nova. White dwarf did the sa- could do the same thing. Eventually you'd ignite that hydrogen and it would burn. The neutron star is much more dense, much hotter, and when the hydrogen collects on there, it burns much more, more energetic, so we're getting a lot more energy. In terms of energy, visible light is kind of the middle of the spectrum. Right? Radio waves are very weak. X-rays, gamma rays are very, very strong. So when we start seeing gamma, uh, X, X-ray bursts, gamma ray bursts are coming up. We'll talk about those in a couple minutes. When we start seeing X-ray bursts, it's that same process we talked about with the nova, but the material, instead of collecting on a bigger white dwarf, something the size of the Earth, is actually collecting on a neutron star. So that material collects on the surface of the neutron star and bursts, starts burning. And that burning emits now, because of the higher energy, is emitting lots of x-rays. And that's because the gravity of the neutron star is much, much higher than that of a white dwarf. Significantly higher. So not just a little bit, it's got a, it's a lot stronger gravity emitting a lot more energy. So, but it, the process is actually the same. It's the same kind of process. I think I drew a very similar picture for a white dwarf, except I wrote white dwarf instead of neutron star. So you have all that material collecting on it. So we can see these bursts as well. So these are very similar to ANOVA. Another thing that can happen when you have stars like this is that 
you ca- collecting material on them, it's also going to serve to speed up the neutron star in its rotation. Remember, these things were already spinning really fast. They were spinning, you know, every second, a couple times a second. And typically the periods were, you know, three times a second to 30 times a second. So they're whipping around there, these little, these little tiny balls of neutrons. But we found some later uh, in the 1980s. Remember these were discovered in the late 60s. By the 1980s we were finding more and more and we started to find some that were incredibly fast. That weren't just pulsing a couple times a second or tens of times of seconds a second, but were pulsing hundreds of times a second. In fact, in a millisecond. Millisecond would be one one thousandth of a second. So wouldn't mean they're spinning a thousand times a second, but maybe several. You know, several milliseconds. They might take five or ten milliseconds. It's still incredibly fast for these things to be spinning. Now that's unusual to believe. These were not new pulsars. They weren't like just supernovae that just formed. Remember that the pulsar is going to slow down over time, right? It spins real fast when it's formed. And slowly it radiates its energy and slows down. But what can happen, depending on the way the material is falling, and this is that material coming from another star, it doesn't just land straight on the object. Because it's all rotating, it has to keep spinning and it slowly spirals in. Well, as it hits here, you have this neutron star spinning and you have material hitting it at that angle. You're giving it a little kick each time, right? Like pushing a kid on the swing, right? Every time it comes around here, another little piece hits it, it gives it a kick in the same direction that it's going and speeds it up. So that material coming from another star can serve over, you know, hundreds and thousands of years to speed up the star and make that neutron star move faster and faster and faster until it's spinning it might start out spinning 15 or 20 times a second it might end up spinning 100 times a second. And that's just because of the material infalling on it. So if it comes in when it, if it comes in just right, you can actually speed up and we now find lots of what we call millisecond pulsars that are spinning even more rapidly than we thought was possible for them. They're almost to the extent they get up to the extent where they're they're at the edge of how fast they can spin, right? If you spin something too fast, it's eventually going to rip itself apart. It's just going to tear itself apart. If you tried to spin the earth 30 times a second, we wouldn't be here anymore because the entire Earth would be shredded by the forces of that rotation. If you tried to spin the sun, you know, 30 times a second, it rips apart. You know, try to spin a basketball 30 times, you know, when you're spinning things that fast, eventually their structural integrity just isn't enough to withstand the forces and they will rip themselves apart. So these things are so intense that they can actually spin that fast. That's how dense that material is, that they can actually spin this fast. And what we think happens, this is an example, this is a picture of a globular cluster, right? We've been looking at globular clusters and they're spun. They're spun up, we call it spun up as they're spinning faster and faster by the material falling in. This globular cluster itself has probably about 50 some millisecond pulsars. So it's not a rare occurrence. It's actually very, very common. And we think that this is the process by which it forms. This is looking at it, this is visible light, so that's what the globular cluster looks like to us. When we look at it in the x-ray, there's all the things that are glowing bright in x-rays. Probably about half of those ones that we see are actually millisecond pulsars. So these are very common and that's because, first of all, binary stars are common. 
Most our sun's unusual that it's all by itself. The majority of stars are in binary or triple or four or five star systems. Our sun is kind of unusual in that it's all by itself. So lots of stars occur in these systems and that means when a neutron star forms in one of these systems, there's a better likelihood at some point during its life if they're close enough or if this star goes from being a little tiny main sequence star where it's too far away from the neutron star to gather material into a red giant or red supergiant where it ends up closer, we can then transfer material. And we can then speed up that neutron star and cause it to rotate faster and faster and faster. So this is just within one globular cluster, not talking about the rest of our galaxy, all the other globular clusters, all the other galaxies. There are lots and lots of these objects believed out there. All right. X-ray bursts, how about gamma ray bursts? We saw bursts of visible light, we saw bursts of x-rays, now we also see gamma ray bursts that occur. And these were detected by satellites, oh, when, back in, the, back in the 60s or so, right? Satellites were first launched in the 19, late 1950s. Um, they were looking for, you know, nuclear tests, nuclear tests. A nuclear explosion on the surface of the Earth will emit a lot of gamma rays. So you'd get a big burst of gamma rays any time a nuclear weapon went off when it was being tested somewhere on the surface of the Earth. But that's not what they were actually finding here because when you mapped out where they came, over almost 3,000 of them, this is a map of the sky. This is, if you've seen projections of the world where you put the whole world, the whole Earth onto a projection like this, this is the same thing except done with the sky. So this is the entire sky here from one edge all the way around to the other, from all the way up, up zenith overhead to way down, uh, down below. That's the entire sky. So taking that entire celestial sphere and stretching it into a, into a map like this. And when we map out where they occur, we don't see anything. They don't all occur in here or all occur here. They occur pretty much randomly all over the universe. And that tells us that they're not a part of things like our solar system, which is very flat. We know they're further away than that. If they were just coming from the Earth, we wouldn't see them coming from all over the sky. They're not coming from our galaxy. Remember, our galaxy is a flattened disk. So if it was, if it was coming from our galaxy, and say our galaxy, wind stretched across here, let's see, I'm not sure which angle they're using, but say across like this, our galaxy would be a disk like that. You get lots and lots of gamma ray bursts here, and you get a lot fewer further out. We see that with some objects, but we don't see it with these. And that means that these things must be coming from far beyond our galaxy. So these are coming from distant galaxies out in the universe. So something even more energetic. Remember we had white dwarfs? Get, get material falling on them, white dwarfs, we actually had nova. Visible light burst out. We had neutron stars here collecting material, and we'd get x-rays. No, we're not going to jump to a black hole for gamma rays because if you get material gets into the black hole, it's gone. And we'll be talking about those shortly. But there's another process involving neutron stars by which we think we can explain the gamma ray bursts and how they occur. But again, over there, nothing. They're spread out completely over the entire sky. We don't see them clumping and concentrating in any certain area. Question, yes sir, sorry. Gamma ray bursts are related to neutron stars. Why don't they happen in our own galaxy? They will happen in our own galaxy as well. They could happen in our galaxy, but not just in our galaxy. So they're not related to our galaxy. They're related to something that occurs all over the universe. So yes, you're correct. They could occur in our galaxy as well. 
but that would be just a small portion of them. So you might have, you know, with all the galaxies in the universe, you maybe 10 of these, 10 or 15 of these would be visible in our galaxy. It wouldn't be anything that would make it stand out, make it stand out. But yes, you are correct on that. So what do we think might actually be causing these? Well, we've got two models that we think occur. One of which involves neutron stars. And it's actually neutron stars in a binary system. Not just one neutron star with a big star orbiting it, but two neutron stars orbiting each other. So you have a neutron star there, a neutron star there, orbiting around each other. If they're in a very close orbit, that orbit could slowly decay, meaning they're this far apart, then they get a little bit closer the next orbit, a little bit closer. Not in days or weeks, but over hundreds and thousands and millions of years, they would eventually get so close that they would coalesce together and kind of explode and form. As they did that, they would actually form this kind of explosion here that would come out and all the material would be expelled out and we get a great burst of gamma rays that would occur as these two merge together. Now that's one example, that's one way you can do this. The other way is through what we call a hypernova explosion. We had a supernova, hypernova goes even beyond that. And the sketches down here are kind of trying to show what happens in a hypernova. And this can happen in a very massive star. The star forms iron in its core and becomes unstable. It starts to, it starts to implode. All the material rushes to the center and it starts to explode as a supernova. But while it's exploding, it's trying to lift all of those outer layers off of it. So even though it's an immense explosion, if there's enough material, a big enough blanket around it, it's going to stall. It's eventually going to try to push all those layers off. While they're holding it back, eventually it could stop. So the explosion would stop. That's what we call a stall. The supernova tries to explode and can't. There's too much material on top of it. The material then falls back and that creates a black hole. So now we've created a black hole at the center, not just a neutron star. That black hole will start accreting matter, gathering matter into a disk around it, and reignites the supernova. So in this case, the supernova, hypernova, doesn't occur in just one place. As we talked about last time, it imploded and everything ripped apart. It's possible that even with that, you know, beyond any explosion we can begin to imagine on Earth, you know, beyond any nuclear weapon we can imagine going off, there can be enough material on here that can actually hold down an entire supernova explosion. There can be that much material and you have solar masses worth of material blanketing the star. It can take more energy than that explosion to do it. It actually takes a secondary explosion when the black hole starts to form and it starts to emit energy from this disk around it and that reignites the supernova and causes the explosion and the gamma ray burst. So we think that those are the two possibilities. From what I understand right now, astronomers kind of lean towards the second one and I think that's my slide here. That this slide actually looks like, this is one example of a gamma ray burst. Here's what it looked like in April when it burst, how big it was, big and bright. Less than a month later, it was back to hardly anything. And it looks like a really strong supernova. This is what we'd expect to see. There's the burst and there's the hypernova event. So we get the burst first, then we get the hypernova. When you look at them together, the blue line is actually what we observe. 
That's the brightness that we observe for the n- amount of gamma rays coming from it, and it follows pretty closely to the models there. Looks pretty good, but as with most, most things, you know, astronomers, scientists really want to look at a lot of different examples to convince themselves that, you know, is this the only way it can occur? Does the other model still work? Does the other model make some prediction that does not follow with what we see? So we tend to think the hypernova model works, but by no means is that absolutely completely set as of yet. But a hypernova is one of the ways that we could, one of the ways we believe we can form a black hole. So instead of forming a neutron star left behind, we can actually leave a black hole behind. Which is the subject of the next section. A black hole, the white dwarf could be at most 1 in 1.4 solar masses, otherwise it collapsed inward. A neutron star can, exceed, can be about three times the mass of the sun. If you get more than about three solar masses, even those neutrons pushing against each other, even the nucleus, the nuclear matter itself, all pushed together, can't hold it up. You finally put the extra straw on the neutron star that caused it to collapse. You know, one little bit too much, it starts to collapse. If there's too much mass, it collapses right through that and nothing else can stop it. There's nothing that we know that can stop that collapse. It'll continue to come smaller and smaller and denser and denser, get down to the point where that star that was originally many times the size of the sun, because this would have been a very large star, it now condenses down so that the entire material is condensed down to a point. Theoretically, at least that's what it is. So, you know, put your fingers as close together as you can and it's all fit in there. It's all fit in between them with room to spare. Now, whether that's really what happens, I know there's a lot of of space in between your fingers when you put them close together. It's amazing. But that's how tiny this is. What a black hole is, black holes have actually been talked about for hundreds of years, the concept of them. What it really means is that the gravitational force is so intense that even light can't escape. Right? Here on Earth, we can launch a rocket into space. We can lift it with enough energy to escape from the Earth's gravity. If we don't launch it with enough energy, right, it goes up and it comes right back down. It's going to just come right back down to Earth. If the gravitational force is strong enough, a light beam can do the same thing. So instead of light traveling out into space, the light beam comes up and comes back down. It gets bent by the intense gravitational field of the black hole. And that's what a black hole means. The escape velocity, the how fast you have to move to be able to escape from that. There's a certain velocity for the Earth. If you're going a certain velocity, you can escape from the Earth. You can escape from the Earth. You can get away from the Earth. Its gravity still pulls on you, but not enough to ever bring you back. But if you don't go that fast, you come back down. So you can launch the rocket up, right? If you ever watched ones that go up in multiple stages, right? The first stage, the stage goes up, they let go of the first stage and it falls back down into the ocean. It didn't have, it didn't hit, didn't have enough velocity to escape. The same thing can happen here. If you've got enough gravity, if you put enough material close enough together, you can get that escape velocity to be greater than the speed of light. And that's what we mean by a black hole. Light cannot escape from it which means we can't see anything that goes on there. We can't see a black hole directly. We can measure its effects. We can detect black holes out in the universe, and we have, but we cannot see anything directly. We cannot see them directly. And that's what we mean by a black hole. I know, lots lots here, sorry. 
How big the black hole is what we call the Schwarzschild radius after the uh, scientist from the early part of the 20th century who did this calculation to figure out how big is a black hole. That's how big it's going to be in order to call it a black hole. That means if you take all the material on the earth, right, us, the building, the mountains, the oceans, and compress everything down to about a centimeter, you could turn the earth into a black hole. Black hole does not have to be super massive. It doesn't have to have many, many times the mass of the sun. If you had some way how you're going to do it, I don't know. But if you could compress everything here on earth down to the size of about a centimeter, no light would be able to escape from that. We would become a black hole. For the sun, it's about three kilometers. Sun's a lot bigger, so you only have to compress all the sun's material down to something that's about three, about two miles across. Still hard to imagine, right? Can't even imagine getting to the sun, imagine how we can take that sun and compress it down. But nature can do some things with the very massive stars that we can't even begin to imagine. But that's how big the black hole is. So for a, a black hole the size of the sun, it's only about two miles across. A little less than two miles across. Not all that big. Now, that Schwarzschild radius also has another meaning. Schwarzschild radius is how far you have to compress it. It's also what we call the event horizon. Once you get into the event horizon of a black hole, you can't escape. Once you cross that, that is, if your black hole is there, remember it's a tiny dot, I've driven been that many, many millions of times too large. Around that is the Schwarzschild radius or the event horizon. Not a physical surface, but this is what we call the surface of the black hole. There is no surface there. But that's the point where if you take a spaceship and you go into here to explore, you, you still have enough energy, you can still get away. Might be after traveling almost close to the speed of light to get away, but you can do it. If you cross inside the event horizon, no matter how fast you go, can't go faster than light, according to Einstein, no matter how fast you go, you can't get out of there. So once you've gone that far, then eventually you're going to spiral in to the black hole. Eventually you'll end up at the black hole, once you cross that. And if you were inside here, and you try to send a signal out, if you send a light signal out, it goes out, and it will turn around as well. Because it's not moving fast enough to escape. Even light is not moving fast enough to escape from that black hole. So it tries to get out, and it can't. It gets pulled back in, and all the light ends up trapped within the black hole. Doesn't mean if you were within a black hole, it would be completely dark then. There's lots of light there. There's just no way to cross this boundary, this event horizon. There's no way to get in information from inside this to out. We can send lots of information in, anything we want. We can send inside there. We can send signals. Yeah, you can send a signal to someone inside a black hole, and they'd be, they could be able to receive it. But they have no way to get it back out to you. Unless someday we come up with some way of traveling faster than light. Right now, according to everything we know, that's not possible. Yes, sir. Sorry. Yes. It honestly, it depends on the black hole. Okay. There are some black holes where that would not happen, where you'd actually cross through this event horizon and not even know it. Oh. A real big black hole would be like that. Something like the one at the center of our galaxy, which is millions of times the mass of the sun, 
You could cross right through it and you'd never even know that you've passed the point of no return and now you're trapped. A little black hole, now if the sun were to become a black hole, that would happen. You would get stretched, stretched and then eventually ripped apart. You know, if, you went, if you went in feet first, your feet would get ripped from your body and you know, you'd be stretched and ripped apart. So yes, wouldn't be pleasant. If you're going to go in a black hole, you may, want, may as well go in the big one. At least you can get inside and then you'll find out what's really in a black hole. You can't tell anybody else, but you at least find out. Yes, ma'am? Once you get inside it, no. Getting to it, we can do some things. We can figure out some things as to what happens and some very strange things happen. But really what happens once you get in it is we don't know yet. <laughs> you might not want to. <laughs> Alright, so in order to understand this a little bit, we've got to talk a little bit about relativity. So I'm going to talk about two different types of, two types of relativity. Einstein uh, well, just about a hundred years ago now, uh, gave us two theories of relativity. He gave us special relativity, which deals with motion, how fast, how things move, and he gave us general relativity that deals with gravity. Special relativity is based on a couple of postulates. Right? If you've taken geometry at some point, maybe, a postulate is something that you accept is true. It's not proved. So there is no proof for this. Einstein said, you know, this seems to make sense to me that I, the light, speed of light is as fast as you can possibly go. Based on all of that comes special relativity. And according to all of our observations to date, Einstein's right. Doesn't mean there won't come something, you know, a year from now, 10 years, 100 or 1,000 years from now that will find a case where special relativity doesn't work. But it is an assumption. It is not something that is proven that the speed of light is the maximum possible speed. Einstein makes that assumption and says, okay, light is the, the speed of light is as fast as you can possibly go. And based on that, we're going to measure a few things. We're going to see what we can do. We're going to see what comes up. And what you find is that velocities don't add together quite the way we think they do, typically. If you're here you have someone in a car firing a bullet out of the car. Well, the bullet travels at say a thousand kilometers per hour and the car is driving a hundred kilometers per hour. The observer out here sees the two velocities added together. Okay? Because the car is traveling so the gun starts out traveling at some speed and so instead he sees the bullet not traveling at a thousand kilometers per hour but at eleven hundred kilometers per hour. Okay? And it works. It works real well for low speed. That works real well for low speeds. We actually use that in terms of launching, like launching spacecraft. We try to turn them where the Earth is rotating, give them that extra boost of the Earth's rotation. Instead of go, you don't want to launch against the Earth's rotation, you want to go with it. So the Earth is kind of giving you that extra push off. And we use something quite similar to that. But if you look at light, if you have a light beam traveling, it travels relative to the ship at the speed of light, whatever number that is, 300,000 kilometers per second. If you've got this cool spaceship that can travel much faster than anything we can imagine yet, at a tenth of the speed of light, normally we would think that the light beam, this observer watching it, would see that traveling at a little over the speed of light. But it does not. The speed of light is the maximum speed. So no matter what anything else is traveling, you can't travel at a tenth the speed of light and then shoot something out a little bit fast at the speed of light or close to push it over. It means that when we add velocities together like this, we're really doing it wrong. 
There's a much more complicated equation that works. For everything we use in everyday experience and beyond, this works just fine. So you don't need to use the more complicated equation. But when you're adding velocities that are close to the speed of light, Einstein gave us a completely different equation to add the velocities. It's much more complicated, but no matter what you do with it, no matter what velocities, how fast you go, if you're going at 90% of the speed of light and you shine off a light beam or you ex expel something at 90% the speed of light forward, you don't get to go 1.8 times the speed of light, you still get only just closer to the speed of light. You don't ever reach it the way the equations work out. So that's one thing. The other thing that he said, oh, I should have said, did I? Wait a second, let me go back one second. The same value. Yeah, it's always the same value. That's why I want to make sure I'd mention that. It's no matter who's observing it, you always get exactly the same. Number two says that there is no absolute frame of rest. Nobody's at rest, right? Theory of relativity, everything is relative to, to another. So you cannot tell. Essentially, what that means is you can't tell who's moving. So if we go out there and we measure a star, and we measure its Doppler shift and say it's moving away from us at so many meters per second. There's no way to tell whether it's really doing the moving or we're doing the moving or some combination of the two, which is going to be the most likely. But you can't tell. There's no measurements that you can do to tell which one is actually doing the moving. Uh, sometimes you, can, might, you might notice this when you're driving, right? If you're stopped at a light, Maybe you've ever, I've noticed it a couple times, but you never noticed the car next to you going backwards slowly and wonder what's going on until you put your foot a little harder on the brake and you stop. You were creeping forward slightly, but you didn't notice it because you were going so slow and that other car looked like it was going backwards for a second. It's an example of, you know, you can't really tell the difference. Yeah, when you accelerate quickly, that's different. Uh, special relativity does not involve accelerating at any kind of uh, significant speed. But there is no absolute reference. So you can't just say everything is at rest, this is at rest, you know, the sun is at rest, the galaxy is at rest. This galaxy, some distant galaxy, is the thing at rest and we measure everything relative to that. The idea of relativity that everything is in motion relative to each other. And then finally, space and time are not, not independent. They're actually one thing. Space and time are actually related to each other. And it's what we call space-time. So you can't really separate space and time directly. And in fact, when you get inside a black hole, our best understanding right now says that they get all tangled up. And you know, time travel is nice and possible once you get inside the black hole. Because you can travel through time just like you'd normally travel through space. Difference is you can't get back out of the black hole. So you can go into the past, go into the future, you still can't get back out. So you can time travel, but you can't get out and can't get out and do anything. So essentially, they're really all one thing. Here, in terms of space, you have in, our, in space, we can move any direction we want to in space. Right? We can go up and down and side to side and forward and back. And we can travel through time, right? forward at one second per second. You know, we can travel through time. It's just in one direction at one specific speed. We can't, you can't change it. You can't go at two seconds and try to get into the future. If you go inside a black hole, those all get tangled. In terms of space, now you're stuck in one direction. You can't go outward. You can only go towards the black hole. But you now have a freedom to move in time that you didn't have before. When you look at all of these things, you get a whole bunch of things that come out. And I'm just going to write a couple of them here. 
One is length contraction. It means if you're moving, an object is moving very, very fast, it gets squished down. So if I throw this, you know, like a javelin, and you watch it, it's actually a little less than a meter in size. Okay, for how fast I'm going to throw it, microscop mini microscopically less than a meter. But if you could move it at half the speed of light, and you could measure that meter stick zipping by you, you'd find that it wasn't a meter, but it was less than a meter. Might be 80 or 90 centimeters. The fast closer you get to the speed of light, the smaller it would appear to get. As you get faster and faster, finally disappearing if you could hit the speed of light. Time. What we call time dilation. The faster you're moving, the slower your clocks run. So, go in an airplane, take a long trip in a plane, you know, get a really accurate watch. You can measure this, you know, going to be microseconds difference between what it should have been if you were staying still and if you're traveling in the plane. Your time has slowed down drastically. I mean, slightly. But, so if you want to live longer, right, travel in a plane all the time. Stay in the plane, keep moving. Obviously, the fact, if you do that for your whole life, it may, may make a difference of, you know, one millisecond in, in your life. But if you could travel at half the speed of light or three quarters of the speed of light, you see this in science fiction uh, shows, and it is, it, it is true that if you could travel that fast, you would age a lot less. So you take a trip at close to the speed of light to the nearest star and come back, and you may only age, you know, Alpha Centauri is four years away, four light years away, so you might age eight, nine years. But somebody on Earth could have aged thousands of years. Because their clocks ran at normal speed, yours were going so slow because you were traveling at such a, fast, such a high speed. So your clocks slow down. Your clocks will slow down. Uh, what else? Uh, let me just do a mass. I'll do three of them here. The mass increase. Your mass increases. One of the reasons we can't go faster than the speed of light is that the faster you go, the more massive you get. The more mass you have. Okay? So, yeah, you might live longer, but you're going to get more massive by going fast, going close to the speed of light. What that means is that that's why you can't go faster because the more massive you get as you get closer to the speed of light, your mass gets higher and higher. It takes more energy to try to get you that next push to speed you up a little bit more, which increases your mass more, which means you need more energy. Eventually, to reach the speed of light, you need an infinite amount of energy because your mass just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The faster you go, the more your mass increases, which in turn makes requires more energy in order to in order to keep moving. So this is some of the things that come out of Einstein's, Einstein's theory of special relativity. Now general relativity, I'm going to start with this and then I'll finish this up here on Friday. We'll try to finish this up. Uh, general relativity is based on a principle as well, what we call the equivalence principle. And the equivalence principle says, it's quoted here, is it is impossible to tell if you're in a closed system, if you're in this closed box. So if we could eliminate the windows and the doors in this room, we're in a closed system. That means there's no experiment that I could do to tell you, you know, without opening a door, without opening a window, to say whether we're sitting here on Earth or if we're accelerating through space. There's no physical experiment that we could do you know, if we drop a ball. Okay, this guy here standing in the Earth's gravity. He drops a ball, it gets gravity, pulls it down to the Earth. This 
person does the same thing, drops the ball. There's no gravity to pull it down, but this is accelerating upward, so the floor is going to come up and meet the ball at exactly the same rate, if you're accelerating at the same speed as compared to gravity. There's no experiment that we could do to tell the difference between a gravitational force and an acceleration. There's nothing that we can do. Again, drill a hole in it, yeah, you can find out. But while you're enclosed in this box, there's nothing that you can do. And that leads to some very interesting things with gravity that we'll look at next time. So I'm going to stop there and we'll pick up on Friday. I will finish up and we'll talk about general relativity and look at that and then look at the possibilities, our possible evidence for some black holes of smaller masses. We'll get to bigger ones coming up in the future chapters. Questions? No, no, no. Alrighty. Have a good rest of the day and I will see everyone Friday.